Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly. I am your host, Don Kamarechka, here for episode 164, recorded on January 19th of 2022, the Photo Geekery Show, uh, where we just, you know, find the geekiest stories in the news rundown for the week and chat about it. It's really easy for me because I'm doing that anyways. Uh, and this is the podcast version of that where I can express myself not just within my own head, uh, because that slightly drives up my insanity. I get to share that with a guest. And this week, I have my very good friend Jordan Drake on the show uh, for obvious reasons or that will become obvious in the uh, the very short term. Uh, but let's get these intros out of the way. I'm curious, Jordan, how are you? What have you been up to? I'm doing really well, Don. Uh, I was just saying before the show, it's funny, January is like supposed to be my slumber month where I can just chill out, you know, get caught up on things, but it's like a barrage of product launches that I was not anticipating at all. So uh, I've actually been running around quite a bit lately. I'm, I'm actually kind of thrilled about these product launches and, and we'll, we'll get to them uh, in, in, in just a bit. Uh, stay at the edge of your seat, folks. But, um, you know, you are right that this time of the year is typically a quiet time. Uh, you know, I, I guess I lucked out for many years because that's when I was doing my Snowflake series. Uh, because there was nothing else to really do. And I'm still going through and editing my images. And you can check that out on social media. I've posted recently a whole bunch of colorful ones because I know many of my friends and family members in Ontario, at least, have been just completely dumped on under a wall of snow. Uh, and I see the temperatures dropping to like between minus 25 and minus 30 degrees Celsius for a week straight. And here I am on the coast of the Black Sea and uh, tomorrow it's going to be eight degrees uh, as a high. It's mid-January. We have a construction project going on in the back. We're building a wonderful outdoor kitchen with a stone oven. We've hired some contractors to do this. And I'm looking at that happening in mid-January. And I'm, I'm reminded that, Jordan, for you, summer is basically two weeks in June, right? Yep. That's the, we get our color on the channel there. We try to shoot about 36 episodes in that two week period so that we can have a little bit of a different look for that brief window in the year. Uh, we're back to uh, white and brown and gray right now. So, uh, you know, aside from your recent foray into New York City, um, you are welcome to travel here to Eastern Europe at some point in the future. Uh, we have uh, maybe when there's a photo kina or something in Germany, it's just a plane ride uh, uh, down here to the coast of the Black Sea. We have a guest house. You and Chris are always welcome. I am a great guest to have. Uh, Chris is quite demanding with his accommodations. So as long as you're prepared for that, we will totally take you up on that. Uh, in Enough beer in both of you, and I'm sure you will both be sated. Yeah, exactly. We're easy. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, I, I brought you on this show because some of these announcements that we're talking about, uh, they have uh, a video twist to them, or at least these products have been in your hands or have been across your radar that you can pick apart better than most people can, particularly the top story in the rundown, which I don't know if you've had your hands on one since you recorded a video for DP Review, but Canon has just announced the EOS R5C. And, and this is, I mean, I want to say it's big, but it's also kind of small because at the heart of it, this is the EOS R5, which everybody tore apart, uh, you know, fanboys and not, 
because myself included, yeah, uh, because of some of its shortcomings, including the, the the fact that okay, it's really purporting itself to be a big boy video camera, uh, yet it had all of the overheating issues and other shortcomings that you know normally a video camera should not have, uh, including you know the the fact that it doesn't have vector scopes or uh, you know the, the the things that show you the beautiful things in video that you need to know that you're doing things right or wrong while you're doing them to correct things on the fly without having shot a day's worth of stuff incorrectly and then you die of a stress ulcer uh because i I don't know what you're talking about that has never happened to me in my professional (laughs) career (laughs) right uh okay so uh along comes the eos r uh r5c and we kind of knew it was coming just from rumblings internally. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a well-kept secret that you know, a, a cinema version of the R5 was, uh, you know, w- was going to be crossing our desks at some point. Um, so we only have, at least I only have spec sheets right now. Have you had your hands on one yet? I still haven't, uh, but I was really happy to see this morning um, Gordon Lang from Camera Labs, a good friend over there in the UK. Uh, he did get his hands on one. So there, that video that he put out answered a few questions while I'm waiting for my camera to arrive. My first question for you, Jordan, how do you feel about micro HDMI? I am opposed to micro HDMI. It's a terrible connection. I've broken so many cables over the years, like even the slightest bit of torque on that. And I've actually damaged the ports on the cameras themselves a couple of times, you know, just to pull it out or plug it in a little bit too hard. And now you've got the butt end of a cable jammed into your HDMI port, never to come out, no matter how good you think you are with tweezers. Uh, It's a terrible connection. And on a pro video camera, like I would say, Two thirds of the time when I'm on set, there is something plugged into the HDMI port on my camera and it's going to break and it's going to piss people off. Now, circa 2008, Canon came out with a really cool battery, the LPE6 for the Canon 5D Mark II, which was pretty revolutionary back 14 years ago, wouldn't you say, Jordan? I would say so. I mean, that battery has had some life, but uh, I think it's finally, we've hit the wall when it comes to that technology. I'm, I'm hitting the the really, I, I'm, I'm kind of knocking this camera out at the knees right now, and we're going to build it back up. But I do want to talk about the shortcomings first, because Canon, I mean, you're aiming with this product to uh, to satisfy all of the naysayers, right? And yet you put some obvious targets for me to point my finger at and say, bad Canon, what are you doing here? And okay, so the HDMI port for a pro video camera, that's probably not a thing that you should be doing. Uh, Even though you are including internal raw recording, which is a good thing, but for a camera that is being used in professional video uh, scenarios, the HDMI port is not just for external recording, it's for external monitoring, which is almost ubiquitous these days on these cameras. Uh, and, And when you're attaching various and sundry accessories and accoutrements, including lenses that require the camera's battery as well. Uh, I'm remembered uh, back in the EF days, remembering that the the 1D series camera bodies uh, with their beefier batteries, they actually had uh, whether it was the current or the voltage or you know just the extra uh, you know power in those batteries, they would have 
a better control over the autofocus mechanisms on their super telephoto lenses. And uh, not many people realize that if you put, you know, an 800 millimeter lens on a Rebel, yeah, it would autofocus, but it wouldn't autofocus as well as on a 1D series body, not because of the autofocus mechanisms in the camera, uh, but because of the battery technology that was being utilized and the more power that you could have, the better off you would be. And the, yeah, they're now at the LPE6NH, I think. They've revised the technology and it's somewhere just north of 2,100 milliamp hours for those batteries. And, and that's, I mean, that's good. It, it's not yeah. great. Uh, compared to what they're offering in in other cameras that are slightly more cinema oriented, because we are crossing into that threshold of okay, you know, if you're using this for pro cinema work, what are the other options available to you? And one of those is the C70, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which uses their big video series batteries. Yeah, the the uh, well, I mean, it comes. Pick, uh, sorry to talk over you, but it, it comes packed with the the uh, the A30, I think. But that design of that camera is much the same as other pro video cameras. You don't, you aren't limited to that. If you want a battery that packs twice as much juice, you get a battery that just sticks out twice as far from the camera. Uh, and so, from a thirty-one hundred milliamp hour, which is the A30, to I think sixty-four hundred milliamp hour, it's more than double when you go to the mm -hmm. a60 and there might even be bigger ones there's probably a 90 uh, that just kind of sticks out a full meter from the back of the camera but it's an option that you could have if you needed it right yeah exactly um and the big we should just say while we're talking about the battery what that actual limitation is on the r5c uh which is if you're shooting the high speed raw recording mode so faster than 30 frames per second the camera is no longer getting enough power to power the lens mount so depending on the lens that you mount to it you could lose autofocus aperture control um, or even manual focus with a lot of focus by wire lenses with that and the reason that we're so hard on this camera is i keep thinking back to when i was working at a camera store uh my greatest fear would be getting a call from someone who is on set like i'm here with a client we're shooting slow motion raw recording that is the requirement for this job and none of my lenses are working what do i do and in that it's like we need to get the word out these limitations exist you can easily work around them by using like a you know a high powered usb device or by running it off dc power uh, then you will still be able to record those high frame rates and have your lenses working just fine but it just yeah, it, it's something I could absolutely see biting people professionally while they're working because this is a high spec codec. You're going to be using it in those high pressure situations. And I think Richard at DP Review did a great job with his article he put out this morning saying like every irritating limitation of the R5C is based on the fact that it's built on a prosumer stills camera, you know, the battery that it's using, that micro HDMI port. Uh, those are the kind of things that uh, we would never think of those if we were building a professional video camera from the ground up. Okay. But let's take a comparison to another manufacturer and how they transitioned a, uh, a stills camera uh, that did decent-ish video work, uh, the Lumix S1, to mm -hmm. create the S1H. And, and I I like to think that it's a it's a fairly parallel comparison here because at, at you know at lower resolution obviously the uh, R5C is using a 45 megapixel camera sensor and can do 8K video whereas the S1 and S1H are 24 megapixel sensors and max out just under 6K in a standard uh, format ratio. Um, 
But to make a video-centric version, uh, Panasonic uh, added active uh, active cooling onto the S1H and still maintained weather sealing. And so this is something that we knew that other manufacturers could do. Uh, and it's great to see that Canon has uh, allowed for this to happen and has different modes where the fan can be active or inactive uh, based on whether or not you're using the in-camera audio and if that noise makes a difference for you. Um, You've used the S1H extensively, which is why it's I want to baby. Ask. It is. And, and I've got one too, and I've used it for a lot of documentary film work, uh, and it excels at that. I've never had anybody ask me for more than 6K of footage. Most of the times the deliverable that I'm asked for, at least right now, is 4K. If I can do it in RAW, that's great. I've got my Ninja V. I can record that. And people have been genuinely happy with that. Um, the R5C, as a video camera, uh, as a parallel, as an adaption from the R5. Now, again, the R5 had a micro HDMI port, so you're going to have that carried over, unfortunately. Have they made the improvements that you would like to see otherwise, uh, just like Panasonic bolted a better video system onto the S1? Has Canon done the equivalent here? And if they have, do you applaud them or do you say you should have just pointed people towards the C70. Well, I, I think it's a little bit complicated because certainly if you're shooting video, it's a no-brainer, get the S1H over the Panasonic S1. It's a video, better video camera, except you know you get slightly sharper video from the S1 just because it doesn't have an AA filter on it, which the S1H does. But with the R5C, I mean, there's some stuff that I really want to applaud Canon for. The biggest one is that this has two user interfaces. This is the first time we've seen this on a camera. So you put it in photo mode when you fire it up, it looks exactly like a Canon R5. When you fire it up and it's in video mode, you get the entire interface from their cinema series. It's a completely different menu. Uh, they're not just trying to bolt a photo uh, and video menu on top of each other, uh, which I think is a way more intuitive setup. I mean, the number of times I've been on the Panasonic and it's like, I have to go down to custom tools page seven to get to my waveforms and vector scopes because I got to scroll through all the photo tools that are there as well. I, I think this is a really elegant solution for that. Uh, so I do definitely want to applaud them for that. And you know, it is very demanding record modes on this, being able to do internal raw, especially high speed. Uh, that's really cool. And it's going to need cooling for that. But yes, I do think with the S1H, there's fewer compromises. Like we haven't even mentioned that camera has in-body image stabilization, uh, which the S1 had as well. Uh, and and uh, the, R5C the Canon R5C, no, they took that out. And I mean, I get mixed messages all the time on this. Uh, a lot of people who are on bigger productions are like, look, dude, if we're going to move the camera, it's going to be on a crane, you know, on a gimbal uh, with the steady cam operator, things like that. But are and those a lot of people, people are those people putting uh, an R5C? Do you envision them putting one in that scenario? That's the bigger question. Yeah, I do think because these are used a lot for like car cams, crash cams, because they're so much smaller than like a Canon C500 or something. And that's and where we've seen a lot of- And much less expensive too. If you're putting so, it as yeah. a crash camera, you know, you, you, you don't want to ditch, a, you know, a, I guess a five digit price. I'm not even sure how much they cost for those cameras right now, even though for big productions, that's still probably just a line item. But uh, this, uh, the R5C is only about a $600 premium on yeah. top of the, uh, the, I guess the more photo centric version with an in-body stabilizer. Uh, but for 600 bucks extra, if video is something that's on your radar 
And an in-body image stabilizer is the only detriment uh, of, it, of it not having that compared to the stills version. I honestly, I'd go for it. It's not the first time that that's happened. The uh, the, the Lumix GH5S uh, uh, forwent the uh, in-body image stabilizer as well. And it was applauded and is still used on a regular basis uh, in a lot of production scenarios, right? Yeah. And the same thing with, uh, if we're referring to Panasonic, like the box cameras, mm-hmm. same thing. Take the IBIS out because there's a good chance these are going to be used in vehicles, uncontrolled situations where there is a chance of that IBIS causing issues in those situations. So I I do think it was a sensible decision. I would have loved to see two models, but one with and one without. But then also, do we want to have three versions of the R5? It's already going to be confusing for consumers. I I think that there could have been uh, an additional, uh, you know, just an engineering uh, extra je ne sais quoi uh, put into this here where if if the engineers were allowed to um, you could have and, and this technology already exists I mean if an, if a stabilizer isn't being used there's little magnets that hold the sensor still right it's not free floating mm-hmm. um, make the magnets stronger I mean yep. if, if there's got to be a way to say okay well if you're not using an in-body stabilizer no matter how much you shake a camera around there should be a way to secure the sensor to uh, its its mounting system and not have it move around and then deactivate that and in fact especially if you are like if it's like a, a hard locking mechanism you're already dividing the camera into a photo and a video mode and have that locking mechanism locked on in the video mode as if the camera has to recycle its power in such a way. And that's not an unheard of thing. You change into like raw video recording on the S1H. You've got to power the camera down and back up again, or maybe it's from PAL to NTSC. I can't remember, but there's something that uh, requires uh, a reboot of the camera software to do that. Uh, people are okay with that. If the engineers yep. were just given a little extra wiggle room and the cost probably wouldn't have been that much, you would have made a lot more people happy or at least the armchair quarterbacks like us right now have one less thing to complain about. Yeah, absolutely. But now that being said, if I were to grab an R5 or an R5C, I would go for the R5C. So they've certainly done their job right in that regard. Uh, but I don't know. I still like my S1H. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see too, because anytime that you add a a larger bump to the back with the active cooling and the screen protruding a little bit more, you're going to get, like if you're using the electronic viewfinder, uh, that's not going to be a really comfortable experience. You're kind of bolting something together that, yeah, it's more adaptive to another experience than this. And and so we'll see. I'm looking forward to seeing what your opinions are when you get your hands on it. But you have had your hands on the next camera that has most recently been announced. And I'm very curious what you think about the video features of the new Leica M11. Don, I'm going to come right out and say it. The video features are bad on the M11. Uh, I, I think I can, I can state that definitively here on your uh, podcast. You, you can maybe you can do some time lapse with it, uh, but the, effectively there is no video functionality in the M11 whatsoever. They have foregone it entirely, and. Uh, you know, that that's an interesting move. I mean, uh, I shouldn't say a move. I mean, that's pretty much like as modus operandi here for their rangefinder cameras. Is there still a space for a, uh, a, a camera without any video functionality? Does it uh, satisfy a stills photographer? Because I'm seeing that Leica 
you know, especially uh, with the option of the diehard rangefinder fans, there's uh, added improvements to the fact that it's using the sensor as soon as the camera's turned on or shortly thereafter to uh, add extra, you know, uh, sensors from, or I guess, uh, I guess the term is, uh, what is the term that I'm looking for, Jordan? The uh, well, it's, it's multi-matrix metering or yeah, a full-frame yeah. metering system from the sensor as opposed to just center-weighted metering that Leicas have had since they put meters in back in the M6, I believe. Uh, something around there. So it is, it's a little more elegant than something from 50 years ago, yeah. Well, I, I would say it's probably the most elegant camera that Leica has ever produced. Uh, send hate mail to Jordan for that comment, but, uh, you know... Let's unpack it. So uh, at its core, we've got a 60 megapixel uh, camera sensor uh, at 4.5 frames per second with a base ISO of 64, uh, possibly a, a, a dual sensitivity sensor with its second one kicking in at around 200, but that's not documented yet. Um, and things look really clean, ergonomic, and I've never sensed a uh, a digital rangefinder from Leica to be very intuitive in terms of the, the, like it's it's minimalist, not intuitive. Yeah. I mean, uh, you just you don't have the array of buttons in the same places on every Canon camera that you've ever owned and know instinctively where they're going to be. Uh, but Leica has more custom functions on this one, including uh, the the rear uh, spinny dial next to your thumb can actually be pushed in, and that's programmable to have different functionality as well, which is new over the. M10 and um, just a lot of, uh, you'd have to get to know it. But once you do, I think this camera is something of, a, of an extension of the photographer rather than something that, you know, you have to fumble through, especially when you're trying to find your way through more advanced settings and options. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like the big upgrades to it are ones that I don't think really detract from the rangefinder experience. Like I've been bemoaning the base plate for decades now, uh, which on the film cameras, you'd have to take off a base plate to change the film. Makes sense. It's a small, tiny camera, but on the digitals, they did the same thing where you'd have to take that off uh, in order to get up your card um, and battery. But also if you had a quick release plate in it, then you couldn't remove the base plate. So now you've got two levels of irritation before you could get that off. Um, now, and now I you really only like... have one layer of irritation because if you have That's... a quick release plate on, uh, you still can't get to the lever to remove the battery. That's true. But now we finally have a USB port in this camera. So you can transfer files off the internal memory, off the memory card and charge the battery. Charging, without, yeah, that's, that's key too. Um, yeah, without but, having to pop that off. But but I noticed um, that, uh, and, and maybe it was just in, in the photos and the video that I saw, but that, that USB-C port on the bottom, uh, does it have a port cover at all? It doesn't look like it's weather sealed at all. No, it's it, now there is some weather sealing internally, just like what you see with a smartphone nowadays. Um, but there, yeah, you're gonna get gunk and crap in there uh, if you're putting it on a table, as you're want to do. Because it's uh, right on the bottom of the camera, and you want is... that Leica out displayed when you're out in public. So uh, yeah, that bottom, you you are gonna get stuff in there. Uh, it's not my favorite design. I would have preferred it on the side of the camera, certainly. Uh, I'm torn because I'm delighted to see it, but yeah, the, the placement is not ideal. And even just having a little rubber cover on that, I think would have been great. Now, 
there, there's obviously no autofocus on a camera like this because it is still an M series rangefinder using uh, the M mount, which Leica has had for many decades. Uh, and uh, there is no need for them to adapt that for the people that you know are looking for that rangefinder experience, right? Autofocus has never truly been a concern if that's what you're after and that's what you're used to, then that's just what you've been using all of this time. But is there still a place for that? I mean, could they not have gone with, basically what I'm asking for is, should this have been an L-mount camera? Because you can get an adapter M to L, and, and I've got one. I've actually got one on an M-series lens right here. It's a stereoscopic 3D lens from 1954, but it doesn't matter. I can put that on my L-mount cameras uh, using the M-series adapter. Should this have not taken advantage of all of that advancement and still kept something just as small? Yeah, I mean, they could certainly do that. And I'm pretty sure we're going to see it at some point because they already have the interface built and ready to go in the Q2, which is one of my favorite cameras, uh, but it's a fixed lens camera. So I wouldn't be shocked at all to see them do this. The only reason for the M10 and 11 to exist is if you enjoy rangefinder photography. And it is, it's a different experience. I understand it. Practically, I can't make a compelling argument for why it's a superior format to a mirrorless camera. Uh, you know, you can see outside of your frame lines. That's great. But if that's what you really love, you know what? Just throw like an optical viewfinder with frame lines on the hot shoe of your mirrorless camera and have at her. Uh, so it's about using that. And most of the upgrades that they've put into this make the experience of using that rangefinder more pleasant, you know, like the great battery life that we're seeing on it, having the better metering system. I do think some of the staff in... DP Review in Seattle made a great point that I wish we had just two or three phase detect pixels in the center of this sensor. So you could say, uh, you know, on a Nikon camera, and I believe Canon had a similar thing when you were in manual focus, you'd get a little dot to confirm you're in focus at yeah. that point. It would be awesome to have something like that. You're still using the rangefinder, but you're getting information from the sensor. Because if you've ever tried to use a rangefinder with like a 90 millimeter lens or something like that, it's not precise enough to get you accurate focus. You know, I always find myself stopping down heavily when I'm using those kind of lenses with a rangefinder or something like what Pentax does where you spin the focus ring as soon as it's in focus, it actually would trip the shutter. They called it catch in focus. Something like that would be great. Doing a street photo, line up your shot right where you want it. Soon as a person walks by and hits that phase detect point, boom, it trips the shutter. You know, something like that where you're using the rangefinder, but adding some of the technology from it using the sensor when you're actually taking photographs, I think would be really cool. Uh, but outside of doing that, it's still, I mean, it's the best digital rangefinder ever made. It's just not for everybody and not for a whole lot of situations. So so would it be blasphemous then to put the electronic viewfinder, which is I think 3.7 million dot EVF on this thing? Is, is that is that something that should be allowed? I, I think so. I mean, when we're doing critical focus, uh, you know, we Chris shot with the rangefinder a lot when he's doing street shots and stuff like that. But as soon as we're doing like, okay, we really want to see how much detail we're getting with this, he's shooting off the LCD and live view because it is a better way to focus uh, and check your camera settings, meter, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so if I had this, yes, when I'm taking a critical shot, I would have that electronic viewfinder on absolutely a lot of the time. And if it's the kind of work that doesn't warrant that, then yeah, it's fun to shoot with a rangefinder. Uh, well, I can and certainly I, I, see that. 
I would like focus peaking with an EVF on a camera like this. It just, it sounds like that would be a great tool, uh, even in manual focus. And I don't need to have focus confirmation from uh, phase detection, autofocus dots that, that might be around so long as focus peaking is a tool that I would have at my disposal. And, and so there's an advantage. I, I use it for macro photography all the time when autofocus is not a thing. Um, and it's a very valuable thing. But um, one thing that I found about this camera's design and I wish was on every camera that I owned and was sold right now is internal storage. And I'm not going to say that I want to use it very often, but it is a safety net that would cost the manufacturers very little. This camera has a 64 gigabyte internal uh, storage capacity, and I don't know how fast it is. I don't think that it's necessarily been benchmarked, but its speed doesn't necessarily matter. It's there to catch you if you forget a memory card or to give you an extra backup uh, so that you yep. could record internally and to a, an SD card. And it's a UHS-2, I believe, so it's a faster card in this one versus the M10. Um, uh, but to add that extra storage to a camera, if I had to pay a premium when buying a camera because there was a version of it that had internal storage, I would always pay that premium because there have Same. been times that I've you know, I've left my uh, my card in the reader from a shoot the day before and I've gone out and I've driven an hour on location. I don't have a memory card. And yes, there's many reasons why I should. Don't complain to me about my own uh, disorganization. I know that I should have a memory card always in my camera bag. And I know that I should always uh, be doing backups of various and sundry things. And I have, thanks to Venus Optics, uh, uh, Laowa just sent me a memory card holder. And I've got a fancy way to keep all of my SD cards in one place now. And you'll notice that there's nothing in it because I'm still disorganized. But um <laughs> Okay. Um, that aside, internal storage is a big is a big win for me. Uh, Fourteen stops of dynamic range, which Leica is saying that when you actually reduce the image resolution, because it's got this uh, sixty megapixels main full uh, full resolution mode, it also has, I believe, a thirty six and an eighteen megapixel medium and small size that you can still shoot in raw. Uh, Leica uses the DNG file format, which is compatible with the pixel binning that they use. They state, and it'd be really curious to see uh, how this uh, you know, is, is properly tested and analyzed by people like DxO that do all the fancy tests, that at the lower sizes, that it actually has an increase in dynamic range through that pixel binning. And I'm wondering if that's just marketing speak or if there is some science behind that. Um, what, what, what say you? Is, is dynamic range that important? I mean, dynamic range is hugely important. I just find it very interesting because Sony has quoted what I, I do really believe is the same sensor at, um, at uh, 15 stops dynamic range at base ISO, uh, where Leica is saying you have to go to the lower resolution modes to get that 15 stops of dynamic range. I do really think that they're just looking at it in terms of what is the noise threshold that we're going to allow in the shadows at a per pixel level. And I've been on this campaign for years now that stop analyzing cameras at the pixel level. That's not how anyone will ever look at your photographs. Uh, yes, if we zoom a 60 megapixel version from this uh, camera in at 100% and we do the same thing with the 18 megapixels, it's going to be less noisy in the 18 megapixels. But if we look at them both at the same viewing size, 
I found the image looked exactly the same. Uh, so yes, I do definitely think that this is marketing. And my greatest fear is we're going to have all these people who get this beautiful $9,000 US camera. Like $9,000. Like, Thank you for mentioning the price. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big premium over the M10, but they're going to take this out and be like, oh, I'm going to go do some gritty low light street shooting. So I better switch this camera to 18 megapixels now and get a two stop noise advantage. You're just throwing detail away doing that. Don't do that, people. I do still want to test dynamic range. Uh, it was a requirement. We were not allowed to lab test the pre-production version that we were shooting. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing a production version get into the DP review labs, and we'll see if we see a dynamic range increase. But I really think it's just you're going to have less shadow noise with those smaller megapixel files at the per pixel level, uh, which is why they're giving it that higher rating. But I think always shoot this camera at 60 megapixels and do your resizing and post afterwards. I, if you've got the storage and your computer can handle it. Otherwise, uh, you're not getting the advertised benefits there is my suspicion. All right. Uh, thank you for your suspicions. But I, I know that you are well-versed in sort of a, a side topic here that I just want to touch on because this camera has a base ISO of 64. A lot of cameras have a base ISO of 100 or 200. Uh, in video, when I'm shooting in, uh, in RAW or in a log format, my base ISO might be 640. Um, base ISO in some cameras could be 400 or 1600. What the heck is your base ISO? Why does it vary from camera to camera? And why do we care about that number? Well, the tricky thing is your your ISO is rated based on middle gray when you're shooting a JPEG, uh, which is I would say a hopelessly outdated way of actually metering your scene out. You know, you mentioned shooting log or uh, raw video, how it boosts your ISO. And a bunch of people are like, oh no, I'm going to need a pile of ND filters when I'm using those. But you also ideally want to be overexposing those modes, which means when you properly expose your image, generally you're pretty close to what your base ISO is in stills. Uh, it's, it's frustrating. And what we're really curious about when we see a camera with a very low ISO is, do we see an appreciable benefit over that camera at you know 100 ISO, for example? Uh, the example I use all the time is the Nikon Z7 or the D850, Z7 II, they all use the same sensor. There, when we compared that camera, which could shoot at 64 ISO base, we actually saw a substantial improvement in dynamic range compared to other cameras. That's what we want. That's like our, our goal when we're looking at these. Um, it was actually pretty competitive with a lot of medium format cameras when you shot in that mode. The sensor could just soak up more light. Uh, what I'm concerned about with the Leica is I do suspect that it's metering lower based on those exposures, but based on the dynamic range uh, information that they're giving us, I think uh, that is where you'll get the most dynamic range at ISO 64, but it's going to be pretty comparable to a Sony a7R4 or a Sigma FPL uh, when they're shooting at 100 ISO. You just need a tiny bit more light for it. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious. I want to actually meter two scenes at base ISO and see if the exposure winds up different. Uh, that's something, again, I'm looking forward to testing when we get production, but don't expect like, hey, this camera shoots ISO 64, so it's going to give us two-thirds of a stop more dynamic range than an A7R4. I'm pretty skeptical that's actually going to be the case. Well said. Well said. Now, well, one final thing about the, um, the, the M11 and, and Leica cameras in general. Now, we don't know um, who is manufacturing this camera. 
However, uh, we do know that there has been a very strong connection in the past and currently between Leica and Panasonic. Panasonic um, has been known to manufacture Leica products in the past and make versions of their point-and-shoot cameras with uh, Leica branding and optics and, uh, and, and firmware with different menu systems specifically for the Leica brand. Um, which is an interesting comparison to make. Again, we don't know who is actually manufacturing this camera, but uh, I can make an assumption based on past knowledge that it might be Panasonic, which is interesting because this is a 60 megapixel full frame sensor being used in this camera that could potentially be manufactured by Panasonic. And yet Panasonic does not yet have a camera of that resolution in any of their products. Um, and as a, panic, uh, a Panasonic shooter, I'm very curious to see where, uh, where that might lead in the future. Um, but uh, anything that we would uh, you know, suggest is, is all just uh, uh, hearsay and, uh, and just a thought experiment at this point. Yeah, I do kind of think Leica's dabbling with using some Sony sensors because I really suspect the SL2S, their 24 megapixel mirrorless camera, uh, that was uh, the Sony sensor that we've seen in the a 7 III, the Nikon Z6, the S1H, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, but if it's the Sony sensor too, that, that begs the question as to, you, you mentioned earlier, if Sony is really big on base detection autofocus uh, using their sensor, and that sensor is the same or very similar to the one that is put in this M11. Yeah. Why, why don't we have access to face detection if it was in the silicon to begin with? Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Who knows? The, the future is bright uh, when it comes to all of these wonderful new announcements and seeing what shakes out over the next year. I think will be really interesting to see. Uh, I mean... There's not many manufacturers for sensor technology anymore these days, or camera bodies for that matter. I, I had an addendum for the Canon story, actually, that Canon is shutting down one of its factories in China uh, that was predominantly, I believe, manufacturing point-and-shoot cameras and some other lower-end products in that area, employing around 1,300 people. And it's just come to pass that, you know, especially with chip shortages and lack of consumer demand in certain product classes, that that's just going away. And the industry is somewhat becoming more and more consolidated in not just fewer manufacturers, but fewer factories within those manufacturers as well. Uh, so you can kind of read the tea leaves and see where some of the stuff might be coming and going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one manufacturer that is well off in its own playing field uh, is, okay, so Jordan, have you ever had your hands on a camera by uh, Vision Research? I have not, no. So what do they make? They make high-speed cameras uh, for scientific uh, work as well as uh, some filmmaking. When you need that insane, super slow motion, people will still hire a phantom for the day. I, I remember first seeing them on Mythbusters and similar programs where they, they needed the high-speed footage and it was kind of the, the cutting edge. It, it's like this technology shouldn't exist today. But if you had an unlimited budget, um, what could you possibly put together through a variety of technologies that are not mature enough to possibly mass produce, but you can make uh, a limited number of that you might not even sell? Some of these cameras from Vision Research, the, the Phantom cameras, the high-speed stuff, I don't know if they actually sell them. Uh, they'll rent yeah. them. And when you rent exactly. them, you're also hiring a technician to operate it. They, they, they come with an operator uh, along the way. And so they've announced 
this was reported by by Petapixel. The Phantom S991 shoots 4K at 937 frames per second, uses new fiber delivery technology. And so they're using this uh, co-express over, uh, over fiber technology that can achieve these resolutions and frame rates, which I found kind of interesting just as a, as a tangential thing, because when you looked at their previous camera, the S990, the 991 uh, requires just two fiber cables uh, to achieve 70 gigabits per second. The previous version of this camera, which is pretty much identical internals, um, but it had to use copper cables. And it had to use 16 copper cables to transmit data from the camera to some exotic recording mechanism. Could you imagine this monstrosity being used anywhere and having, if you have trouble with a single HDMI cable, Jordan, <laughs> what would you do in this scenario? I mean, I would look at the guy that I also hired to operate the camera and wave my hands at him a lot and say, like, you sorted out. That's why we brought you here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I've been saying for a long time, sensors are doing more impressive things than what we actually have the pipeline to handle. The R5C, again, was a great example of this, right? We've got high-speed raw recording in those things uh, that have limitations on the camera body in order to actually utilize them. Uh, so yeah, it's just a matter of like, can you get the data off that sensor fast enough? And I think that's where we're really going to start to see the advances on this. And a global uh, shutter on a lot of these cameras as well, which is wonderful to see. And hopefully we get that trickling down into more cameras, especially as we get high speed stuff uh, coming through our, uh, I, I almost want to use the phrase digital SLR, but interchangeable lens, uh, digital camera, mirrorless or not, whatever, when we're getting up to, you know, 240 frames per second, or even faster than that, uh, as that technology continues to evolve, that global shutter will become more important as well. And I'm, I'm wondering whatever happened to a particular technology. Maybe, you know, you, you watch the video specs on, uh, on every product, I'm sure a little bit more closely than, than I do. But when Sony rolled out the Xperia 1, and I believe there were some other Android phones that had like a 997 frames per second mode that lasted for less than a second. But there were some really cool slow-mo videos that I had seen people taking of like speeding down a street, pointing the camera out the window uh, and having everything just appear as if it's bullet time from the matrix or you know, similar effects that was just really cool to have in consumer hands in their smartphones. That just disappeared one day and we haven't seen that again. It, do, you, do you think that's going to be coming back? Is Are, are those high-speed modes, do, are you going to have to rent a Phantom or is this going to be something that's relegated to your smartphone once again? Well, where that we really saw those modes is on Sony's one-inch stacked sensors, uh, which they use for a bunch of their RX100 models, uh, RX4, I believe, also. Uh, and yeah, it's a the same kind of stacked technology that we're seeing now in all of these flagship mirrorless cameras. But remember, if your sensor is only you know a one-inch type, it can read that out insanely fast. And that you know one-second bottleneck that you mentioned is the exact same issue we're running into with this Phantom camera. It's like, how can we get the data off this thing fast enough. So I could just write that to a buffer. And if you ever use those cameras, you'd shoot that clip and then you'd wait for like 30 seconds while it pulled the files from the buffer and wrote them onto the memory card at 24 or 30 frames per second. Uh, 
that that bottleneck is still there. Like if we look at the uh, Nikon Z9, which is the fastest readout that we've seen on a full frame mirrorless camera at this point, uh, it should by all accounts be able to basically give us the look of a global shutter. Uh, but because of the way it's reading the video out when it writes it to the card, we're seeing a lot more rolling shutter in the video modes than we do when we take a single photo. And it's again, just that pipeline, getting the data off the sensor fast enough it's going to keep getting better, but I don't think we're going to see major advances in sensors. It's how can we use these incredibly fast sensors that we're already starting to see and actually make full use of what they're capable of. That's going to be the development in the next little while. And I think that uh, the, the mass storage uh, on these cameras is going to be an asset as well. Uh, again, the, the cost doesn't matter. If you want to buy a 16 terabyte SSD right now, you can buy one. It'll cost you as much as a car, but they exist. Um, so once that technology exists, well, maybe there's even 32 terabyte SSDs now. I'm not sure. But I remember being on set with a phantom camera, and I forget the exact model, but there was lots of wires coming out of it, and the fan sounded like an engine starting. Um, and... There was a, a, a rolling buffer where it was act, uh, actively writing and rewriting to, I think it was a two or four terabyte cartridge system at the time. And the director um, had to, like, if he didn't say stop on time, his footage would be overwritten. Uh, and for a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of this type of shooting, you only really get one shot. So if you don't say stop fast enough, you're screwed. Um, and it can be very expensive to reshoot that just because you couldn't record enough data uh, just because your, your bucket of bits just wasn't big enough. Um, so yeah. all of that is improving uh, for those people that need that tech and uh, they're cameras that we'll never own. So maybe we should move on to things that people possibly will have in their camera bag. Not a lot of people will consider buying an, uh, an anamorphic lens. I know you've used them um, uh, on a number of shoots. I was actually- uh, I got a case of them right there. They're lovely. Oh, what, what do you got there, Jordan? Anything you can talk about? Uh, yeah, I'm using the, um, what's wrong with me? The Vazen uh, Trio right now for Micro Four Thirds. So 28, the 40 that I had actually when I came and visited you. Uh, God, was that a couple of years ago? It was before COVID. Uh, it, was, uh, and, it was in February and of 2020. That seems yeah. like a decade ago. Uh, <laughs> but yes. So the, the thing about those lenses um, is that they have a really unique look to them. And, and yes, it's, it's most often associated with well-done cinema. And so, you know, maybe that's a gimmick because well-done cinema doesn't need to be done with an anamorphic lens, but it just so happens that it is. And so you want to mimic somebody that you are very fond of or a film that you're uh, nostalgic about or something that really worked well for somebody else and you want to use the same tools, they're available mm -hmm. to you. But what if, Jordan, what if you could get a similar effect without investing the oodles of money on a lens that requires its own special adapters and things? Because it's not it's not as easy to just slap it on a camera like you would a normal lens. But what if you could have put a filter on the front of any lens you already have to slightly mimic that artistic cinematic effect? Would you go for that, sir? I mean, there's certain cases where, yeah, I've been on set before where we're dragging a knife across a UV filter in horizontal lines, which is very similar 
to what the product that we're about to talk to uh, winds up looking like uh, in order to get just the flares. Cause that seems to be everybody just associates anamorphic. The first thing that comes to their mind, it's not ultra wide screen. It's not a sense of perspective or anything like that. It's, Oh man, those JJ Abrams flares are going to happen. And it's possible to achieve those without the complicated optics of an anamorphic. So uh, moment uh, has announced new Cineflare streak filters that promise anamorphic style flares without a specialized lens. And as you mentioned, I mean, this is really simple. And it, basically, they took a laser etcher, uh, normally from those engraving companies that have mostly gone out of business that would put your special message on a coffee mug or a, you know, a wine glass or whatever. They're now repurposing them to laser etch onto these filters. And you've got a bunch of horizontal lines or vertical as your persuasion. You can put it in any direction that you want. Um, and, uh, and so these lines mimic that flare. Have you used any of these? I mean, you said you've kind of designed your own by just crossing a knife across uh, a filter. Did, did it achieve what you hoped? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a sloppy horizontal flare, the design that I looked with. Certainly like the sample images that we're seeing uh, look you know, a little bit straighter, more consistent coming off of that, but it is a very similar aesthetic. Uh, and I might soapbox for a second here, Don, uh, that everybody just anamorphic equals flare. But really what's most interesting about it is you're using longer focal lengths with ultra wide uh, frames. And what that means is the sense of motion at the edges of the frame winds up looking very different from if you used a spherical ultra wide lens and lopped the top and bottom off. We all know the rule as something gets closer to the edge of the frame on a wide angle lens, it starts looking like it's moving faster. Uh, once you take that away, that's the anamorphic look as far as I'm concerned. And you really see it when you move the camera or your subjects moving through the frame, things like that. Uh, and these filters aren't going to give you that. Um, so I, I think it's important to differentiate those. But if you want to draw attention to a light source, and I'm guilty of this too, I'm actually editing an anamorphic video right now. Uh, it, we're doing a retrospective on the uh, Fujifilm XF mount. And it's like, well, we're just talking about an old mount going out and shooting some photos at night. Uh, so I'm going to have some fun, shot it anamorphically. And yes, I am often positioning Chris so that we've got some fun anamorphic flair in the background. Uh, and you'll be able to get something very similar with these filters that cost a hell of a lot less than going out and renting or especially buying true anamorphic lenses. Um, so if you want the flare, I think these make a lot of sense, but don't trick yourself into the fact that you're getting the anamorphic look because the anamorphic look I find is much more about the actual sense of movement through the frame when you're using those kind of lenses. Go watch and uh, the Go watch the new West Side Story and see what anamorphic really is, because by God, it's amazing. I, I've, I've seen anamorphic uh, being used in ways that it's not needed as well, uh, yeah. because you can easily pick up on out-of-focus details that should be circular and they're not. So the, the bokeh in the background of an out-of-focus light point that on a normal lens would be circular is now oval in design. Eggies. When, uh, so yeah, it, it's an egg shape sort of in, in an anamorphic lens. And uh, I think, what was what were we watching recently? I think it was the, the uh, new season of Star Trek Discovery. And when they have like a star field in the background behind the actors and, uh, or, or lights or whatever, and you can see the out of focus uh, specular lights in the background are non-circular. And it's just a scene of people just talking. And I just, it, it 
it somehow gets under my skin. It's like, okay, I can tell it's anamorphic. There is absolutely no benefit for using an anamorphic lens for talking faces and dialogue. Why are you doing that? It's still pretty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's especially funny in that example because they didn't go to space to shoot that. Uh, that's a green screen behind them. And then the artist specifically was like, oh, we're going to have to get the anamorphic curvature. This in is true. This yeah, fake, a lot of that is green screen. Part. So. <laughs> So it's even faked anamorphic at that point. My God. Um, okay. But back to these filters, I actually got an idea when I was uh, seeing that these are just, uh, they, they look like they're laser etched. But if you got that laser engraving machine and you got a filter, man, you could have some fun with that. Wouldn't it be cool if I could just upload a bitmap and get a filter sent to me with that bitmap engraved on it? And any design I want, uh, it could be my logo, my signature, any random squiggles and circles and patterns that I want, I could have laser etched into a filter that would have some type of impact uh, on the flare that would result in my image. And it could be a, a unique signature feel for my work whenever I'm using that particular filter. And it would be gimmicky as all hell. But I... I Still wish that that would be an option. It could be the cheapest glass ever with the cheapest filter threads. I, I don't care. Like the maybe I could just buy a stack of those cheap eBay UV filters and send them to somebody with a laser engraver and say, you know, throw twenty different designs on them, and I'm going to have some fun with that. And there might be uh, like Lens Baby or a similar company could really market that as something to modify, you know, their lo-fi effects to come up with something cool. You know, that would be the hardest watermark in the world to like try and scrub off the image is like, oh God, every specular highlight is a Doncom signature. I'm never going to get this off the picture. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it could be like the, the central leaf of my maple leaf flag image is what I get uh, etched into the filter. And then uh, there you go. Impossible to hide the fact that I created it. Okay, well, that uh, that winds down the stories, but uh, we still have picks of the week. And before we do, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about some of the videos and the hands-on work that uh, Jordan does with his partner in crime, Chris Nichols, uh, for DP Review TV. Uh, and you've actually done some writing recently for DP Review as well recently. Where can people find those musings uh, and, uh, and your general commentary at the world at large? Yeah, you can find uh, those articles on dpreview.com. Hopefully, if you listen to this podcast, you're aware of it. Uh, our episodes are always going up on youtube.com slash dpreview. Uh, so we do two a week, generally, uh, a short and a long. So any gear reviews, anything like that, or our thoughts on the R5C or the uh, M11, if you want to get a little more in-depth on those. Those are up. As mentioned, we're going to be looking back at the Fujifilm XF mount and we're going to start a firestorm uh, next week. Uh, we're going to talk about why the medium format specialness of its depth of field is a myth. And I'm looking forward to the controversy that's going to come out of that one. Uh, it oh, should wow. be fun to watch. So check that out. Also, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at that Jordan Drake. Uh, so you can find my musings and occasional photographs there as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Jordan. And uh, for the show notes, of course, you can find those at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, for me, my website is doncom.ca. That's D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. All of my social media connections. Are, you can actually plug in uh, doncom.bg. Uh, I've gone through all the legwork to register the Bulgarian uh, TLD, top-level domain, um, for at least a couple of things. So feel free to send emails to don at kamarechka.bg. They will 
still arrive in my inbox now. I'm trying to, uh, you know, become more of a of, of a native in this new homeland that I have here, which is uh, turning out to be great so far. I have very few complaints, other than I. Uh, uh, yeah, languages have never been my thing. Uh, Jordan, you grew up in the uh, the education system in Canada where uh, you're forced to learn French through at least part of grade school. And all I ever walked away with was, uh, non, je n'ai pas parlé français. So... <laughs> Languages. I know a few of the articles from the classroom, like uh, stylo un gum, uh, the pen and the eraser. I got that down. But yeah, uh, I, I can string a couple of conversations together with verbs. I could say what, like uh, la grenouille manger la pamplemousse. Sure, most of those I've read off of packaging labels since then. Um, okay. So learning Bulgarian is hard. It's it's technically a level four language. Uh, languages are rated in terms of their difficulty. I think something like Swedish is a level one language. Japanese is a level five. Bulgarian is a level four. And uh, I'm a bit envious because my daughter, who's five and a half right now, is picking it up super fast. And it's humbling the moment when your child is able to learn something better and faster than you can. Uh, and languages are one of those things. I'm sitting back looking at this little mind, uh, just uh, soaking it all in and thinking, I'm old. And that should not detract me from learning other things. But man, I got I to gotta step up my language game here finally. I've got competition. Anyhow. Uh, let's get into our picks of the week. Uh, I've got one that, you know, for the last little while, I've been using laptops as a, as a main computer system and laptops have been getting a lot more powerful over the past couple of years, especially you go for a, a flagship, not desktop replacement, but, but something thin, like a razor has their blade, uh, series of laptops, uh, which are packing a lot of power into a small design. I'm currently using a, a Microsoft, um, a surface laptop studio, uh, cause I like the convertible design and, and, uh, editing with a pen is something that I'm becoming more used to. And, and I quite like that. Um, but one thing that you're usually lacking is uh, GPU power. And that's not to say that the GPUs in laptops are not great, but a desktop GPU, like even a really, really cheap one, will probably beat the snot out of anything that's in your laptop, just because it's bigger and it has better cooling and it's just got more space. And when you make things more compact in a tight space, then there's heat and, and the laws of making things smaller make them more expensive. So uh, with the uh, invention of Thunderbolt, it has been possible to attach a GPU in an external enclosure to a laptop because Thunderbolt uses a PCI Express interface and you can connect, if you have an external GPU enclosure, a full desktop graphics processor to any laptop that has a Thunderbolt port. And uh, I have discovered the magic of this. I have purchased a Razer Core. Uh, Razer makes a lot of uh, computer stuff. As I just mentioned, some great laptops on their own, but they make an eGPU enclosure. I went for the Core Chroma, uh, which is it's one step up in the, the power, uh, power supply. It's a 700 watt power supply versus 650, which really doesn't matter. Um, and it's got some blinky fancy uh, 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 RGB lights, which I also don't care about. Oh, thank but God. Uh, I mean, I, I set them to white uh, because that's fine. But the uh, the benefit of going for the Chroma is that it has a built-in USB port. One of the things on a laptop is it never has enough USB ports. And anytime I plug in a USB hub, they'll work-ish 
for a couple of months and then they start to get flaky. I've never found one that I really liked, but if it's on a PCI express card inside a, like it's just a one X PCI uh, card that has all those USB ports. I've never had those flake out on me. And so far it's been pretty solid as both a USB hub and an eGPU kind of functioning like a dock. You just plug that in uh, and away you go. And uh, I've got, uh, it's, it's not a, an inexpensive GPU that I put in it. It's one of NVIDIA's RTX um, uh, A series. It's an A4000, uh, which I figured was a you know, I don't game a lot, but I want something rock solid for editing and transcoding, and uh, and it will excel at that without having any issues with software that it is designed specifically to work in, not the cutting edge bleeding technology of games to eco every frames per second. But it doesn't matter. You can put one of the cheapest Radeon or NVIDIA graphics cards in an external enclosure, plug that into your laptop, and your laptop will likely be far and away better at uh, at scrubbing through videos or encoding or any of the Photoshop filters that use a GPU or heck, I use Helicon Focus that uh, is a focus stacking piece of software that dr uh, dramatically uses all GPU power that you can throw at it uh, in order to just work through its algorithms. And this is becoming more and more commonplace where that GPU is important eGPU enclosures are a thing and they are worth their money. I'll get off my soapbox, but uh, check those out. Uh, for the cost, uh, if, you're, if you have a laptop workflow, you should probably buy one. I'm just curious, uh, you, like you mentioned Helicon for um, photo stacking, what are the applications where you're seeing the biggest bump using the external GPU? Uh, you know, if I was to be uh, working through 6K video, uh, raw video actually is is easier to use with less video processing, I found. Uh, but if I have something that's already baked in, it's harder to work with, especially when I start applying filters on top of it to try and change things. Uh, so any video timeline that I have, that I have a high resolution uh, sort of baked in video that I have even one filter applied to, I can't really watch it in real time unless I scale my my viewing window down super, super tiny uh, in order to just see things play out. So that that's one uh, dramatic example. But even using uh, Topaz Gigapixel AI, great example. And I'm not sure if their other tools use the GPU as extensively as their Gigapixel tool. I'm assuming that they would. Uh, based on my internal GPU to the external one, it's about five or six times faster. Wow. Uh, so instead of just watching a progress bar, you know, I get up and go and make a cup of tea, come back and maybe it'll be done. Maybe it's not with the GPU. I just kind of take a long blink and it's finished. So we're all good there. It speeds up everything and it just makes life easier. Perfect. That's all you can ask for. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, that's my pick. Jordan, what do you got for me? I've got, uh, a little accessory that um, I've actually found super useful in the last little while. I always tell people like, you know, you might not be shooting video all the time with like a big pro video camera or anything like that. Usually we're shooting like home videos on our phone, um, but built-in omnidirectional mics are the worst things in the world. Uh, so yeah. I grabbed, uh, Sennheiser brought out something called their XS Lav Mobile, and it's specifically made to go into a smartphone or any other TRRS device, like a laptop, something like that. Um, it's just a little clip-on lav mic wired, uh, but 
I was kind of floored with the audio quality. For years, Sennheiser's, uh, their big expensive wireless systems that are like six to $800 have come with um, the MK2 capsule, which I've hated. It's a $120 little microphone. Uh, this thing is like $50 and it sounds way better than that microphone. So I'm hoping that they actually ramp this up into their professional video mics as well. But anytime you just want to, you know, shoot with your smartphone and you're like self narrating what's going on or like talking to your kids while you're filming something, just clip a lapel microphone on and it'll sound worlds better. It's not a lot of hassle. Like I said, they're very inexpensive. Um, and you can get it for both lightning connection if you're an iPhone person or, uh, USB 3 if you're using any other smartphone on the market these days. Uh, but I think a wired lab is something everyone should have. And I was really incredibly impressed with this little guy. So you should check it out. You know, we, uh, we, we got a satellite TV package here. Uh, in Canada, we didn't have cable or satellite or any TV. We would just watch Netflix or stream anything online. And, and that was fine. But uh, a lot of programming here is not available online in the same traditional ways. And so you want to you know, enjoy the local news or some of the local dramas or sitcoms. Uh, then, uh, you know, there's a couple of reality TV shows, you know, cooking shows and things like that, that we have been enjoying even in Bulgaria. And we needed a satellite TV connection. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, watching the news, which like actual news, I haven't seen much in a long time, uh, broadcast television, the amount of vertical video that I, I see know. in the news is just phenomenal. Not in a good way. I mean, the majority of journalists are using their phones these days um, in every language, apparently, uh, whether it's English or Bulgarian. And that little, uh, I, I, you know, you said 50 bucks to, to plug that yep. into whatever port's already on your phone uh, and clip to your shirt. You can be a citizen journalist and not have your audio sound like crap. Um, you know, if anybody is out there that is legitimately doing any type of, uh, l like you said, if you know, you're going to go out there and do this, uh, you can put that, you know, in whatever bag you have handy, uh, you know, uh, man purses are a pretty big thing here that would fit very easily into a man purse or a fanny pack. I saw somebody wearing a fanny pack the other day. It definitely made me smile. Uh, so yeah, a perfect, uh, uh, accessory for, uh, for anybody looking to be a man or woman about town to, uh, to, yeah, thank you for that. I'll have to look it up too, because, uh, there are many times when I'm just talking to friends and family and if we're FaceTiming or, you know, using Skype or whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever video conferencing system, uh, it's yep. almost always on my phone and I know the audio is not great. Uh, and this seems like a, just a really simple, you don't have to do anything, right? There's no configuration. There's no a special app no, that it requires. It, it, it just works. Awesome. Yeah. Right, and I mean, let's say you're going to a coffee shop with your laptop as well. You're probably not going to bring the nice desktop microphone you've got in front of you. So throw a lav in the bag and it'll do a great job isolating the sound. What? Yeah, bringing a, uh, a Heil PR40 uh, to a cafe is not a good idea. Would that be too hipster for you, Jordan? Uh, the, the staff tend to frown upon it when they see you walk in with the big mic, yeah. Yeah, br bringing a desktop computer with a CRT monitor too while I'm at it, uh, just to, and, and type away on a purely mechanical keyboard just to annoy the hell out of everybody. 
I'll do it. I'll do it, but I shouldn't. Uh, I was recently at a family cabin with my iMac and needed to upload a file, which the internet was terrible. It's like, do I go, am I the guy who goes to a Starbucks with an iMac and puts it on his table and uploads the video from there? I mean, yeah. I'm actually presented with a similar scenario here because uh, in our village, we're, we're talking right now over a 4G connection. It's actually a dual 4G connection because I've got two modems, two 4G modems wired in together, each with their own SIM card and various different antennas. uh, And I'm bonding those connections together for added bandwidth. Uh, But it's a 20 minute drive to the the larger city of, of Varna where they have full 5G coverage everywhere. So it has come to pass at least once that I've brought uh, my laptop with me to my in-laws place in the city solely so that I could upload like an eight gigabyte uh, deliverable file that would have taken as many hours, uh, like eight hours to upload here from my village connection would happen in, I don't know, less than 10 minutes uh, uploading on that super fast connection that's unlimited in this area. So yeah, I I can see that. I, I can believe that that's a benefit. Um, I'm really hoping that I can get a better connection out here as time goes on. <laughs> Starlink, please come to Bulgaria. I would embrace that very much. Um, I didn't actually make it a, a pick and I uh, didn't mention it during the episode, but I will just briefly before we finish up, I, I got in the mail today. At least the mail system here works pretty well. I, I got a new camera, uh, Jordan, one that you might never get your hands on. So I get to gloat. Um, this is... Uh, it is a stereoscopic 3D camera. Uh, it is made of MDF board and it is a pinhole camera. So this is perfect for the shitty camera challenge. Uh, and I will be running some medium format film through this. This is, maybe I'll show some pictures of this thing. This is a really simplistic beast of a camera, but it's just so cool. This was a Kickstarter campaign that I had uh, that I had backed a while ago, and they finally finished shipping these out. It kind of holds itself together with magnets, just a loose magnet holding the back on on the camera there. The uh, Minuta Stereo, and it ca- comes with a uh, an equally uh, weird looking stereo viewer as well that I backed for. And uh, it's got a little mechanism on the front here that if I get that to stick properly, I can open the, uh, for however long I decide to leave it open. And then I slide it closed again. And, uh, and then this will lift up this little locking mechanism here that nobody can see but Jordan. So I'll have to share some photos of this fairly unique camera that stops it from opening accidentally when, uh, when not wanted. Uh, really simple, uh, no uh, real mechanisms to speak of, no gears or technology, just back to the bare basics. And it's a, it's a box of hardened cardboard, and I love it. So uh, you're revisiting old camera mounts uh, I'm revisiting old technology, uh, made anew. So there we have it. I should do something on the Samsung NX mount, by the way, while I'm thinking of that. Oh, because NX one was the bomb. It was, and nobody cares about it. Your video would get 12 views. Um, mm. <laughs> anyhow, I'd have Jordan, fun making it though. You would, and I'd have fun watching it as one of the dozen viewers. Anyhow, I appreciate you being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, and I appreciate everybody listening to this episode. I am aiming to get back to a weekly schedule. I need to get Chris back on a future episode as well. Uh, thanks for being here once again, Jordan, uh, for making Always this a show a, uh, a joy. I hope to listen to any feedback, 
please send it our ways. Uh, now you're done listening to us ramble on. It is time to get out and shoot. <laughs>